0: Hello, I'm Evans Mirage, the Harry T. Wilkes Artistic Director for Cincinnati Opera, and my guest on this occasion is my dear friend and colleague, Robin Guarino. Robin was pretty much born in a trunk, and as a matter of fact, one of her earliest memories is standing in the office of Rudolf Bing, the legendary director of the Metropolitan Opera, and meeting the incredible soprano Birgit Nielsen. Along the way, she became the first female stagehand at the Metropolitan Opera studied at the Hochschule for Music in Hamburg, had an international directing career, and now divides her time between the world stages and mentoring the young women and men who come through CCM to become better human beings as well as better artists. It's going to be a great privilege to have this time with Robin Guarino, and I guarantee you, you will laugh a lot at some of her most wonderful stories. Robin, I, I, at the risk of just being uh, this being an online biography, but I do think it will help our audience to understand that I'm talking to someone who was pretty much born in a trunk, as they used to say. Your, 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 connection, well, so your connection with theater and opera goes back to pretty much as long as you can remember. Could you, could you start us off as to where does this journey all begin for you as a, as a, sort, as a sort of a baby thesp, as it were?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, my, one of my first memories is at the age of three, uh, standing in Mr. Bing's office with my Aunt Florence, who was his assistant, and Birgit Nielsen in a fur coat, whisking in, and um, so sort of the coat flew by, and then I was introduced to her, and um,
0: and now that's it. You know what? That's the best name dropping I've had on any of the podcasts I've done. Within one sentence, you introduced Rudolph Bing and Birgit Nielsen and you're in the room as a little kid.
1: <laughs> it was wild. I was that's <laughs> amazing. What
0: was your, aunt, what was your influence like? Oh,
1: She was incredible. First of all, she loved music and she loved opera and um, her father Nuncio had come from uh, Sicily at the age of 17. And when he was young, uh, he would when he was growing up in 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 palermo he would go to the um to the teatro massimo to see toscanini conduct and so that was my family background and and my whole my aunts on my father's side all loved opera and in fact that was eventually how my parents met because my uncle on my mother's side and my aunt on my father's side both worked in the rehearsal department they decided to get my parents together And uh, and that's how they met. But my aunt Florence was an incredibly generous, very loving and well-loved person um, and very close, especially to conductors, um, Max Rudolph and Tommy Shippers and James Levine. So they were. uh, And then Tom. My goodness.
0: So is this still a big is this still in the old met or are they already in the new met when you make your first appearance in the in Bing's office?
1: I make my first, (laughs) you're dating me. I make my first appearance in the Old Met. And in fact, I was at one of the last performances at the Old Met in Mr. Bing's box. Uh, It was during a matinee of Fanchula del West. And I remember it really distinctly because at a certain point, the entire audience gasped. And it was because a young man in the box across from us who had been on crutches leaned over during the strip scene and fell into the audience. And he was unscathed, as was the woman whose lap he landed, but they had to stop the performance. And <laughs> There's nothing
0: like live theater, right? <laughs> so how did your influence uh, get her job at the Met, and what was her job as assistant to Mr. Bing?
1: That's so funny because, well, in in Bing's uh, A Thousand Night of the um, Opera, he thanks uh, my aunt, and he talks about meeting her I think when she was the age of 17 or 18 at, as a child secretary. So she became uh, she began as his secretary and assistant and then uh, I think worked at the Met for 47 years and um, you know ended as part of the artistic ad, ad, uh, administration.
0: So here you are, a kid growing up in New York. Are you actually born in New
1: York City or in one of the boroughs? I was born in the Bronx at Sarah Lawrence Hospital. Oh my gosh. So you are a born and bred New Yorker then. I know it's <laughs> it's, it's amazing. My, it's so by fate,
0: so you get so you get this very early exposure to opera and the Met opera in particular. Um does it run like a thread through your life as a burgeoning professional, or are there other paths that you pursue before opera takes hold of you?
1: You know, I, from the age of 12, I remember deciding I was going to be an opera director, and that was because my godfather was Fabrizio Milano, and we all met together in Sicily uh, in Palermo one summer when I was – that when I was 12 years old and I decided I wanted to do exactly what he was doing. He was so brilliant and creative and amazing. And that sort of set my path. There were, there were a couple sidebars. Um, I became a filmmaker for about 10 years. Uh, but then I circled back to it. I just love music and I love, uh, being in the room where it happens. And, um, parallel to that, actually my mother's father, was a named a man by the name of Blake Hobbs and he was a music teacher from Pennsylvania who, um, in the sixties decided to change his life and he moved to East Harlem and he started a school, um, there called the, um, union, uh, settlement house where he taught music. And, uh, and so we grew up making theater, um, and, 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 um, uh, making music, um, uh, on the street with my with my grandfather, um, on my mother's side. So it was sort of both sides. One side was theater, and the other side was opera. Now, and um, yeah.
0: So as as a young kid, uh, going through the school system, I'm presuming what the public schools of New York. What, what was your what was your formal education like? What's the path of that?
1: Well, I we moved when I was very young to Pleasantville, New York, and I went to public school there. Uh, and then only later on, uh, when in my teens, did we move to Stanford, Connecticut, where I completed high school.
0: And how does one who has the conviction from preteen and says, I'm going to become an opera director at, at that point? So mm-hmm. we're now talking probably the late 70s, right? Or early 80s. How does mm-hmm. one become an opera director? what was uh, what were your some of your first baby steps in the profession or, or towards the profession
1: well i grew i had grown up going to um met rehearsals whenever possible during the week uh on the weekend um i just whether i could watch in the wings or watch in the audience and um and so i i sort of amassed repertoire without even trying Uh, But then it was made really clear to me that language was the key. And so I started studying Italian and German very, very early and then made my kind of 10 year plan about um, amassing language proficiency. And I was always a musician. So I studied the piano and cello and, you know, basically violin, every, every, uh, you know, instrument I could possibly play. And it was just part of the language of growing up in my house. And, um, and then at a certain point, I just asked my godfather, um, Fabrizio Milano for a book list and, you know, and he basically pinned a, please take care of this bear, uh, you know, tag on me along with Teresa Stratus, who is my godmother. And they sent me to Hamburg, Germany, where I was to meet, um, Ralph Lieberman and start, um, studying practically uh, to get into the Hochschule for Musik and just to begin my Oh, my goodness. My path. So is
0: it, is it this point where Rolf Liebermann is the head of the Hamburg Opera? This is before he goes to Paris, right? That's right. So already already yes. a legendary figure in the profession. And uh, he eventually, by the way, becomes the stepfather of a gentleman that we have both met in these most recent years because Marc Piolet, who has conducted at Cincinnati Opera, is his stepson. He's the, he, his the uh, oh, Lieberman's second wife was yeah. the mother of uh, Mark Piolet. so it's the world gets smaller. I so here you are in Hamburg, uh, studying at the Hochschule, and of course, he, Hamburg's opera house is what they call in the industry parlance an A house. So it has international stars. It does operas in in the original languages. It has a great orchestra. Very very intelligent public. Did you start? Did you start haunting the Hamburg opera as well while you were a student?
1: (laughs) Absolutely. In fact, you could buy um, 15-mark tickets back then, and I went to everything I could possibly go to. And my aunt would send people – well, anyone who was coming over to Hamburg would meet me. So I remember – Spending a lot of time with Judy Blagan when she came over to sing Melisande, and um, and different different artists who would come, and then and I would always uh, pick their brains, and they would say, "This is how you have to do it. You must speak this language fluently. You must speak that language fluently. You must study these scores." And at that time, we're talking records. This, this is, is pre CD, pre-CD right? CD disc, yeah. So, the first hurdle was to get a library card so I could go into the library in Hamburg and listen to Hmm. records. And study scores, and in 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 Germany at that point you had to go to uh, and get an Elftenhalt Genehmigung, which was you know a proof of residence in order to get a library card. I, I, the bureaucracy in order to do that was just incredible, but I managed <laughs> to do it, and um, I started really. I mean, you know, for me, I I was never the kind of person who studied language by. Uh, you know studying verbs and going learning grammar for me i wanted to plunge right into it so um to learn german i decided to memorize oh lulu <laughs> and 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 drago and that's what i did i was just telling a, a student from ccn because <laughs> we've been working on poulenc's ymer and it's the first opera she ever did in uh, french as teresa Peroda. And she said, "Can you believe I jumped into it?" And I said, "Yes, absolutely, because I did the same thing. You have to go where the passion is."
0: It's the story that we hear again and again from people who come to us from Europe or from the old Soviet Union who spoke beautiful English. And they, you know, you ask them how did they learn their English, and they said, "American television programs. It's the best. It's all it's all there, laid out in 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 story in storytelling form, as it were. The language, the language come alive." So you have this time in Hamburg, and uh, you spend some time at the Hochschule. But eventually, you pitch back up in New York, right? You come home, um, and is this the time of your life when uh, you actually become a member of the Met staff as a stagehand, if I remember right?
1: <laughs> actually, before. that was before. Wow. And you know, I'm gonna—I'm just gonna backtrack. I was a stagehand at the Met when I was 18 Were years old. Were you the old, first female uh, stagehand at the and Met? I- Wow. Yes. Yes. The first female stagehand ever. And you have to uh, imagine it happened one year after the murder at the Met of that violinist during the summer season. And so I arrived there and I think everybody thought uh, it was a good thing all around that I was there because I might kind of clean up the hood. (laughs) And um, but I arrived in an atmosphere where people were were talking into their watches and there were, you know, Uh, you know, officers running up and down the steps to see how long it would take them, you know, to get from one place to the other. And eventually they they uh, caught the man and he was one of the stagehands. And it was a really tragic um, story because it was he was related to several people. And um, but that was the time I arrived. And so it was really different for the guys. Uh, to have me there and they used to call me Rasputin because they said Guarino we keep trying to kill you but you never die.
0: (laughs) Now did you eventually win their (laughs) grudging respect?
1: Oh they loved me yeah and in fact you know it's so funny because when I first went back um, as a director I was worried about it because some of the same guys Work there, and I thought, gosh, are they going to give me a hard time? And they were so beautiful, gracious, kind, and caretaking of me. Um, it was I was one of their own, and I had come home and made good. And the guys were incredible, and they remain today my family. I mean, that is, you know, basically, a theater is a theater, and a theater is a family. It's very different than the institution and the business, but it were it really those 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 men were the theater, and mm-hmm. we have a long history together. So yes, I did that for my 18th year. And I, I, uh, I didn't know I was going to break my back basically, not literally, um, learning operatic repertoire, but I did it to watch rehearsals and I watched everything and I went every night and, uh, it was an incredible experience, but also learning the art of the stage from the backstage, um, forward. And that was when I first met Jimmy. And, um, he said to me, um, you can come and watch any rehearsal of mine you want. And that was incredible, of course. Wow. And um, and so he became my, my mentor and my teacher. And um, that was the beginning um, of my path.
0: Do you recall anything particularly hilarious about a show on which you were either moving scenery or making certain something was in place and it almost nearly went south or... a a miraculous recovery, an anecdote from your life behind the set?
1: Oh, oh, there are so many. I can remember actually a very funny moment um, when I noticed I had been, I was there during the tail end of John Dexter's uh, time at the Met Great director As, uh, of
0: production and oh, a wonderful designer incredible. of sets. And we should add that uh, the oldest, correct me if I'm wrong though, Robin, the oldest or the longest continuously running production at the Met right now is John Dexter's Dialogue of the Carmelites. It's still there.
1: I think, I think so. And it's such an amazing production because I, I believe the price tag on that production was $40,000 <laughs> at the time. It was made entirely of recycled scenery from <laughs> other productions. Um, which is a real inspiration to, you know, trying to make work now. Um, but
0: anyway, go back to your stories. Okay,
1: no, but any in any event, dialogue of the Carmelites, and it really has become one of the most successful um, productions because he invested in people in rehearsal time, and uh, it was all about the you know acting and text. But anyway, John, so I was I was working on the stage, and John Dexter was there, and I I can't remember what it might have been during the Russian triple bell or the. French triple bill. And I remember he kept looking at me and looking at me. And at that point I had punked out pink and yellow and green hair. And the stagehands used to call me Papagena (laughs) for little parrot. And I would wear these, um, you know, work, work clothings. And one day the head of the supers, uh, Bill McCourt came up to me and he said, Robin, I have something to tell you. And I think you might be amused by it. But, um, John Dexter came up to me and said, who is that striking young boy? <laughs> and Bill responded, well, that's Robin Guarino and she's Florence's niece. And and Dexter said, ah, Florence's niece and a girl. <laughs> anyway. um, but, you know, there were many moments. I mean, during I, I worked on the bohème that uh, Franco Zeffirelli uh, directed and I remember him stopping rehearsal to come over and talk to me and say this is incredible that you're working on the stage and um you know and that you're working as a stagehand and you're really really going to learn the craft so i was very lucky to have a lot of proximity to people like that and they were interested in me because they knew i was really interested in in the form and
0: as you begin to take on your operatic directing career you're still among a very small handful of women directors. I mean, those of us who you know peer into the opera history books, we know the name of Margarita Waldman, who was a fairly celebrated European director, worked a lot at La Scala. But um, the ranks of, of women directors, which are now larger, thank goodness, but the ranks of, uh, of women directors when you began your professional path were quite small, if I remember right.
1: It's true. It was, um, in America, it was Rhoda Levine and she had actually a group called, I think, I want to say her group was Earplay. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure exactly, but I used to go watch her rehearsals and she was very much into improvisation and a really interesting person and very, very generous with her time. And Francesca Zambello, who was, um, a few years ahead of me and, and, um, mentored me and would, give me advice because she was about 10 years further along. And, and, uh, and that was fantastic. She was super generous with her feedback and, and help.
0: So who gives you your first break as an opera director, one person or a company in particular, where do you get your start?
1: (laughs) Well, my first, break, just directing um, on the lyric stage was through Ricky Ian Gordon, actually, um, and uh, directing his songs at, at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine, um, the Dorothy Parker songs with Angelina Rayo and mm-hmm. Michael Sokol and um, and Harolyn Blackwell, actually. And um, that was that was my first break in the city. And my first break out of town, believe it or not, was uh, Fiora Quintino, um, invited me to direct in Peoria. So I played Peoria at a very young age. <laughs>
0: but you didn't bomb in New Haven.
1: <laughs> no, I
0: didn't bomb in New so Haven. So, here you are now, yeah. uh, uh, as it were, a, a, a new opera director with a, a wonderful pedigree, with you know the, the School of Hard Knocks at the Met, uh, great schooling at the Hochschule in Hamburg, and of course, learning it in the best way possible, uh, sur Seine, as they say. But how how has your um, how has your vocabulary as a director developed? What are some of the things you learned early on about how to motivate singers and how to bring drama to the stage? Because, of course, opera suffered for decades, if not centuries, as sort of the canary fancier's art. And really, it's only, well, I'm mean, sure they're isolated incidents in the earlier part of the 20th century, but it's only more recently that we seem to place a greater value on actually dramatic verisimilitude on stage than just planting your feet and singing so what's some of the early vocabulary? some of the early things you learn about yourself as a director and some of the early things you maybe still practice as a director from your very first outings what what did they teach you as it were
1: you know one of my First teachers, and I was—he so generously uh, let me intern with him, and then I became his assistant. Was Jean-Pierre Ponel and I know a lo- Francesca probably attributes this to Jean-Pierre as well. What he gave me was um, basically he he gave, he challenged me to mastery of music, musical form, and language, and and the text, and um, and said that if you had the score in in your, in hand, in your mind, in, if you assimilated the score and if you spoke the languages and if you could be off book, as it were, then, um, that kind of preparation could really release you and free you in the room. And it also, you know, you're working with singers who have been studying their entire life, um, one particular role and, it immediately gains their trust, um, but it was this mastery and his inspiration, but also his freedom. He knew he knew the works so well; he could do anything with them. And once you understand what form and structure and language are, then you have ultimate freedom because you can do. You're not constrained, you know, by your lack of information of shape and scale and meaning. So he was really a formidable um, teacher, especially with regard to Mozart. I was lucky to get pulled into the quote a team um, with a very young Kevin Murphy and Heidi Grant Murphy, and we were all young artists. And Don Upshaw was a little older. We were all there together, and we did all of the all of those works. So we really learned them uh, firsthand. And I worked on the um, Le Noti di Figaro with Ponell way back um, in the in the mid eighties. But also on the other side of the spectrum, uh, one of my great teachers was the visionary. Um, Avant-garde director Robert Wilson, and from him I learned about uh, visual storytelling, and um, and physicality, and um, the whole language of movement. And I think the two the two together um, synthesized have have sort of made me uh, who I am, in a way. And also just a passion and a love for new music, because uh, really early on I I started working with composers who were so generous and so interesting. And um, when you work with a composer and librettist from the beginning, you really learn about construction and storytelling and narrative and and how to do it. You learn about the form and you learn about drama. And uh, so, you know, basically, I just I was an autodidact. I just consigned myself to the, you know, the smartest person in the room and <laughs> studied them.
0: <laughs> you couldn't go wrong with Ponell. That's for darn sure. You know, I was just reflecting this morning, Rob, and I think a little bit in anticipation of our conversation today, because I knew you had worked closely with Bunnell and you'd done all this, Mozart at the Met, of um, Mm -hmm. how psychologically true to this day the marriage of Figaro Figaro is with Cherubino as the quintessential teenager that we've all known and the Contessa, the, the, the woman we've met more than once who's unhappy in her marriage and doesn't understand where love has gone and why has this man that she fell so much in love with as a, as a kid all of a sudden turned into this, this uh, selfish philanderer and the resourceful figure? I mean, all of these are people that we know today. They are not 18th century characters. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering if you'd share mm-hmm. just your own perception a little bit of, for you, why, why did the, particularly the mature Mozart operas, let's just take the Da Ponte trilogy, why do they still work so well today?
1: I think that Mozart has an incredible understanding of the complexity of humanity. And, and as flawed as it is, he understands human beings. And there was something about the collaboration between he and de Ponte and both of their understandings of the form and language and what it was to be a human being that they know how to construct a living, breathing person on stage. And, you know, the it's... It's very philosophical when when you start wanting to talk about how does Mozart do it through repetitions, through the the slight harmonic shifts, through form, um, and how scenes evolve. I mean, there's so many ways to look at it musically, analytically, but also in terms of how de Ponte does it. But when they hit it together, it is... um, it is so alive and so real. And these characters are so timeless. And, um, I think the thematics, for example, of marriage of Figaro, I mean, you, you learn about the four seasons of love, um, young, innocent, um, you know, robust, um, love, you know, the hot summer of, of, of love of the Susanna and, um, Figaro's love the, the sort of autumn of, um, the countess and the count, and then the winter of Bartolo and Marcellina. So that is a, definitely a universal thing. But I do think it's what it says about the classes and, um, and where that opera is pitched, like it's on the precipice of revolution. And Mozart is a feminist. And um, Susanna is really the hero of that, of that of that opera because she's the one who she basically has everything to lose. And she, um, all she's fighting for is the right to make love to the person that she loves on the night of her wedding. And that brings it down to really the most basic and essential fight for human rights. And, um, I think that's why it remains so they're just both so truthful. Um, so vital.
0: So you have, you have this wonderful background of directing, existing core repertoire masterpieces. And it comes to then bringing a piece to life for which there is no video, there is no recording, there's barely a score, or it's a score that's in development. And I'm wondering if you could spend a moment uh, sharing with us a little bit of the dramaturgical process on the creation. I know we could spend hours just talking about this, but maybe in, in context and reference to what we've just talked about for Figaro, how, how does Blind and Justice, the opera that you co-created with Scott Davenport Richards and David Coté last summer for Cincinnati Opera, how, does the, how did you develop the dramaturgy for that? I mean, obviously, Mozart and da Ponte, as you say, were like-minded spirits and they got each other. How does the chemistry work with two living collaborators?
1: Well, I think the first thing is you have to be able to fail together um, and you have to be able to be honest in the room and you have to hold each other accountable and then you have to all admit to being flawed human beings and that the work is, and getting at the truth of the work is the primary thrust of what that collaboration is. Um, With Blind injustice, it was a really, really challenging um, uh, work because these were the true stories and, uh, of, um, people who had, from whom so much had been taken and the stakes were so high to get it right. And so, um, we started with their stories and real materials. And the first question that, that David and I had was how much of their real language can we, can we use, can we lift, can, can it be part of, and, and how do we find a, a way to gather this material in a form that is theatrical and, um, you know, could essentially be, you know, six Mm -hmm. different operas. Um, and what is the story here? And we ended up using the overlay of, of, um, Mark Godsey's book. And he was incredibly generous with his time, especially since we were, uh, two legal (laughs) Luddites (laughs) in explaining, uh, you know, and his book is very, very thorough. Um, but I have to say, it, it was um, the thing that, the lifeblood of it that kept us going were, um, you know, Louise Glover and Nancy Smith and, you know, all of the exonerees who were so generous and really made, they were, ab- they were able to tell their stories in such a vivid way. So, I mean, I think the first thing I learned way back when, when I, I, I was lucky to work with some great composers early on because I was in New York City. So I worked with, you know, Jake Hagee and Ricky Gordon and Ned Rorem and um, Mark Adamo and John Corigliano. I mean, everybody was just there, um, Lucas Foss. Um, but the thing I learned um, from my friend Carlisle Floyd is before you even start writing, you have to have a vital and important mm-hmm. story to tell. And that is mm-hmm. the hardest part of it, identifying what can be, um, told on an operatic, uh, scale and then deciding in what form to tell it. So the hardest nut to crack for David and I was, we knew we had lots of stories, but how to bring it together in a form, um, that, um, you know, would tell the story and make these people live and not exploit them was really essential. And we were very hard on each other through the task. I mean, we, you know, we were never afraid to, um, you know, to tell each other if we were cheapening it. And when Scott uh, Davenport Richards uh, joined, it just made it uh, an even more robust and, and deep um, collaboration. And we, we decided in the end that we never mention or have a courtroom scene, and yet in some way the audience was pl- going to play the, um, the role of the, the jury and the court.
0: Which you did so brilliantly by having that sort of tennis court set up for that, for that premiere production.
1: Thank you. Yeah. We, you know, it was great because I don't think it hit everybody over the head and yet it was right there. We were there in the room.
0: So at what point, um, because David Cote has written plays, and so his, his responsibility is to convey the story through words. How do you train a playwright to trust music to say, you don't have to say all of that. What Scott needs to do here is, Amplify what you're saying through this particular piece of music. How does how does a playwright learn
1: this? Well, you know, I don't know whether they learn it. Um, I think <laughs> I think they're <laughs> born to it, and then and mm-hmm. some of them can do it. There, of course, uh, I mean, there's some great programs where playwrights and people, got, you know, ALT is a great program uh, led by colleagues of mine that teaches uh, how to write. Uh, how to write a libretto, how to write an opera for composers and librettists. But frankly, um, David was, I think David is just a truly talented person who hears rhythm and music and understands scale. And he is uh, so hard on himself that, um, you know, he, it's like he has, um, you know, he's, he's, he's writing with one eye to the road at all times. He's a very uh, hard critic on himself, but, um, you know, I think it was also the inspiration of of the words and the storytelling of who we were dealing with. I mean, we got a very good sense of who everybody was, and then who Mark was, and and who he described the prosecutor to be. So, um, I it really you know there were very few things in our process. What happened? We we created a um, rock solid storyboard down to you know the beginning is this long you know, the next scene is that long. Who are the characters? We knew everything about the drama and we knew about the shape and the scale and where the 11 o'clock number was. And we did very few additions and very through very few sort of changing around. And once in a while we'd say, where's the action? Because that, Mm. that is a problem is once in a while there's too much dialogue, uh, or you have a scene that sort of goes on and, um, it wasn't in this case because we had Scott and he didn't write in that way, but I'm sure you've heard pieces, uh, Evans, where it's sort of endless recitative and talking mm-hmm. and people don't know how to establish a tune or a lyrical line. And they don't know, you know, they don't understand about cadence and syntax and the things that are basically, you know, writing and composition for opera one oh one. So, um, but I found that process, I mean, I could hear the rhythm in David's writing, and the moment I didn't, we'd talk about it, and it would fall out, and he'd say, let's get rid of it. I mean, he was not precious at all.
0: None of you were. It was a fascinating thing to watch. And, you know, none of us could have, none of us could have been around at the final five rehearsals for The Marriage of Figaro, but um, one can only think that um, Mozart and da Ponte, uh, and whoever acted in the role of director, if there even was one, um uh, were hard mm-hmm. on themselves as well. But I remember really up until the very last rehearsals, you guys were still being extremely self-critical to make the end, the end result as tight and as compelling as you possibly could make it. Mm-hmm. Down to almost the dress rehearsal. Well,
1: it's true. But mm-hmm. yeah. Yes, that's true. To Much, much to Glenn Plotz, um Nervous upset. But he, listen, you guys were so generous and we we were very, um, we felt very, very good in the room and we had a great working relationship. There was a lot of trust, a lot of support. And so when it came down to it, actually it was Patty Beggs came to me and, um, gave me some really, really great, honest feedback. And it just took hold in me because it, it basically, it wasn't that it was like, do this or, you know, cut this. It was more about momentum and a feeling of, um, pace and um and then i looked at it and scott and david and i and uh um you know john russell um jm um we got into the room and we went this is what we have to do and it was absolutely clear and it was interesting because it was a scene that had been very very difficult to remember in terms of the blocking and it just was one of those things that sort of sat in stasis and and it it had some it had a lot of um extrapolation but it really didn't have any meaning it didn't serve and in fact it stopped the pacing of it so um yeah we were we were hard on ourselves but we also we knew that we had taken the ensemble with us you know and they were very much a part of it so when it came ready to do it they were all willing to get on a dime and um and just make the change and it was not a not a problem
0: ourselves uh, having heard you for the last couple of minutes talk about uh, the process for creating a new work, uh, working in a dynamic team, you uh, obviously after your quote apprentice days of you know getting your first couple of breaks, begin mm-hmm. to establish your career as a a working director, working all over the country, working in Europe, and then this what I what I hear in you is this wonderful teacher gets a chance to actually both practice your craft. And begin teaching the next generation by coming to CCM. So, how did you how did you wind up up on the hill? What was the path to coming to
1: Cincinnati? <laughs> Insanity. Well, no, that's part I'm
0: of the really profession, kidding. Robin. That's um, that doesn't count. That's not a that's not a reasonable I, defense.
1: I, I <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I was living in New York, and I felt like I had it made. I I was called into to do restagings at the Met, and was de- generally working with Jimmy. I had a phenomenal job at Juilliard, um, as dramatic advisor for the masters, um, uh, program. And I was directing independently and was doing a lot of development of new works, which I loved. Um, and I had a young son with my partner, uh, Wendy Hill and, um, I was, I had just gotten, I was directing at Glimmerglass. I was directing at Canadian Opera Company and Seattle Opera. Spate Jenkins has always been a huge supporter of mine. And um, my old colleague and friend, Karen Likes, with whom I had worked at NYU, she had given me my first teaching job. Way back when, when I went, I can't teach. I'm not a teacher. She said, "No, I want you to come." Um, we, had, I had done three productions with her, and at NYU, and she was here at CCM, and she said, "Listen, would you consider coming?" And they, they actually came back over two years and asked me whether I would come to CCM. And one day, my colleague Ed Berkeley, who's a brilliant director and the head of the Aspen program and has worked at Juilliard for many years and is really one of the great teachers said, you know, CCM's looking for someone. And I just thought, okay, maybe I'll go and, and see. And everyone said, you're crazy. What are you doing? And I said, well, no, I just want, I really want to go because I knew I knew of uh, Bill McGraw and I knew Karen very well. And I had worked with Ken Shaw um, directing him early on in this, um, uh, Carly Simon opera. And, um, so I came not intending to take the job, but really wanting to come as a good colleague and, you know, possibly consultant and see, Mm. and I fell in love with it. And I fell in love with the, uh, the students, the level of students, the sort of energy center of CCM and, and the sort of, on the sort of rough edges of of Cincinnati, but the knowing what an incredible center it was, you know, um, just from stories from my aunt, um, from Tommy Shippers and the May Festival and Jimmy and and Fabrizio had directed many, many, many times at Cincinnati Opera. So I kept turning to my mentors and friends and saying, you know, the, I was offered the job. Mm-hmm. What should I do? And they were just. They couldn't believe that I would even ask the question. And uh, they said, you, oh, you should go. You should go. Why not go? And, you know, at that point in my life, I was, I was much younger. And I thought, well, when you make one decision that ties you into one road and um, and that's I, I, do I want to go down this road? I mean, my career is taking off. And then I just kept thinking about what it would be like to stay in one place and develop your own ensemble of people and collaborators and work in close tandem um, with the Opera House in a neighborhood situation. I was very much, I loved the idea of a smaller city. I had grown up really in my 20s in Hamburg. So I loved the fact that people would talk about what theater they had seen and that that would make an impact on their lives. And that was part of daily conversation. And so it all came together and I said, yes. And then I thought I've (laughs) lost my mind, but by then i had said yes so i um and then then the funny thing was i spent the summer at glimmerglass and the entire um extra ensemble was um ccm students because they had come glimmerglass opera had come to ccm and had heard the singers and they said they're they're so incredible here we're just going to hand pick a, <laughs> a bunch of them to be in the the second ensemble kind of the lower level young artists ensemble and i spent my I spent my summer working with these young singers, and they were phenomenal, and they were what, what really convinced me to come.
0: So you arrive here, you begin to carve out your place uh, in the world of opera in the academic setting, and continue to direct, of course, can maintaining as, as best someone can who has the, the big uh, academic responsibilities, and then something called Opera Fusion and Opera Fusion New Works comes along. How did that start?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I had been um, meeting with Marcus Kushler and we had been brainstorming as two foreigners do in um, in 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 another town about the things that we were going to the creative projects we were going to do. And it was it it was it was fun to be with him because he was German. We could speak German together, which I loved. And he was a musician um, and we loved new music. And so uh he would take me uh to see theaters throughout the city um you know hidden theaters that you had to sneak into um i you know there's so many but just sneaking into the the theater in um down at the netherlands hotel or at the at the masons hall or and um during that time we got together with Patty and with the Corbett foundation and talked about strengthening our collaboration. And we were charged by Karen McKim, who's a great mentor and friend. Um, we were charged to really work uh, in a, in a more robust way and to also to, to look for other funding and to look for wh- and not always turn to the Corbett foundation. And, um, but but to keep engaging in conversation about how we could we could continue to build the program, and that really struck us all. And um, strangely enough, like coinciding with that, for the for the two years um, previous, I had been meeting with the Andrew Mellon Foundation, Mark Skorka, and a group of artists who had been invited to brainstorm about the future of new opera. And um, it was a group of people that included designers impresarios uh directors um composers librettists it was an incredible group of people and we would just sit together and talk about um creating new works and how to do it in what format and what context and um and i was often asked the question you know what can you do at ccm and i said listen you know to be quite frank we have we have the job to teach students um the craft the style the artisanship interpretation languages but also traditional repertoire and i have to find a way to produce new things and 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 find a way that new material and 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 sort of proximity to composers and librettists can further feed um the vitality of approaching old rep and you know But you can't do it all the time because you have to balance it in education. And so um, I was walking out from our meeting, from Marcus and I, and I got a phone call from the Andrew Mellon Foundation. And they said to me, we really would like to invite you to apply for $300,000 of funding to uh, to do a new program at CCM. And, um, you know, uh, we've sent you an email and we'd love to hear what you have to say. And I started shaking and I got off the phone and I called Marcus immediately Mm -hmm. and I said, Marcus, (laughs) I, I have it. (laughs) on, <laughs> and um, and we got together and we and we started with together with Snesia, um, Tomasin writing um, the grant for it and and trying to conceive of how it would would be and we had to sort of pitch ideas and it, and that dialogue went back and forth uh, with Susan Pater who's a fantastic leader and director um, who gives a lot of feedback and at first we all thought oh she's giving us a lot of critique. And then Marcus and I one day discovered that was a really good thing. <laughs> that meant they were really, really interested. And uh, that was how we um, built the first sort of um, cycle of Opera Fusion New Works. And um, the first piece that we brought in was a piece that um, that I had with a composer that I had been working with, um, with a playwright, uh, John Prack, Patrick Shanley, and uh, Doug Cuomo. It was the piece Doubt. Which
0: was being going to be produced by Minnesota Opera, if I remember
1: right. Right. No. Well, right. not at that moment actually. No. We were, we were just develop we had been developing it over mm-hmm. about 2 years and um, and so uh, when we when we initially started, we were just going to workshop it and then they signed on to workshop it. And that was the point at which uh, Dale Johnson came to them and said, listen, um, we'd like to commission it. So it was sort of everything happened at once. But that was, you know, there was a lot in the air then. And that that ended up being a really good thing for us, because in the in the first round, we were doing a kind of hybrid form of a call for works and, reaching out to fellow producers and calling composers and librettists that we knew. And the hotshots, you know, at first were like, Hmm, I don't know. You, um, you know, we don't want to have our opera workshopped in a school. And I, and I kept saying, it's not going to be like that. We, you know, you should see the level of singers we have. And um, and it's Cincinnati Opera, and it's going to be produced on a very high level. And this is a gift to you. And this is 10 days where you can do whatever you want with it. But still, people, uh, composers at were first. suspicious. Yeah. Uh, they didn't want us. They were, yeah, at first, because they didn't want us to get into their things. And, I, you know, I see that because nobody likes to be told what to do. And, and there was a mistrust that we weren't going to give them an environment where they could really make creative decisions
0: and for our listeners who may not have gone to an opera fusion new works presentation the wonderful thing about this program robin that you and marcus created in the beginning and it continues uh, to this time is that this is an invitation for a creative team to bring their work to cincinnati it's not a piece that is destined for the Cincinnati Opera stage. As a matter of fact, that's not even a requirement to, for that we be even moderately interested in producing it here. It's just, is this a work that could benefit from this intense working? So the composer and the librettist and the director and the producer get to work with a highly talented group of students and a professional opera company that knows how to run a workshop. And the students get this amazing exposure to the cutting edge of their art form, which as you said, will help them as much nowadays as learning their Mozart arias. So everybody, it seems like everybody wins yep. in a situation like this.
1: Well, everybody's um, you know, held and charged and inspired to the highest level of their artisanship. The students, It's been interesting because we have the capability with Opera Fusion New Works to bring in alum or to bring in other professionals or friends of Cincinnati Opera. And that's been a great thing. It doesn't have to be all students. In fact, it's great to be able to integrate these groups of slightly older performers or friends uh, uh, and performers from Cincinnati Opera because the students are exposed to a more maybe advanced or at least experienced way of working and um, and they build contacts, and of course, it's phenomenal in terms of bringing in producers from other companies, and uh, connecting them to the students. And often, our our singers have gone on to to uh, be in the world premieres. And anyway, to, right, um, right, yeah. So there,
0: there, and we should clarify that you know some operas have come to the Opera Fusion New Works Program with a producer already lined up. You you mentioned uh, there's been several of them, Intimate Apparel and so many others, uh, the the works that we've done for Opera Theatre of St. Louis and so on and so forth. But there have been a couple of really amazing stories that have come out of um, giving giving a piece that didn't have a particular theatre destined for it, that there was just a creative team presenting to you and to Marcus a, a compelling idea and for me, the most amazing example of that is Fellow Travellers, because uh, the yeah. both CCM and the opera took a flyer, as it were, on this creative team, albeit established people. I mean, Gregory Pierce was a, an already acknowledged playwright. Gregory Spears had already written an opera and had, uh, you know, was a, a rising young composer. Kevin Newberry was already a very well-known young director. But the piece was a total unknown and had no theater that was interested in it. So what compels you from time to time to say, you know, we're going to take on a piece that doesn't particularly have a um, doesn't have a uh, I wouldn't even say pedigree, but doesn't have a theater destined for. But we want to be helpful. Where, where does uh, how does that decision process work?
1: Well, I think it, you know, part of our mission and um, that we stated to ourselves and I think it's become, you know, even clearer and more defined through CO Next and um, uh, Diverse Voices is that we wanted to create a vital repertoire that um, mm-hmm. meant something to uh, our audience uh, and to young people and to future opera audiences. And that meant that it had to be vital to their life experience and, um, and often dealt with difficult thematics um, or um, social justice themes. And fellow travelers for me, I read the book uh, right away and uh, it just was a story that had to be told. It's such an interesting time. And right now actually I'm immersed in it again, writing this uh, Paul Robeson opera about his time in Moscow. Uh, looking at uh, the Cold mm-hmm. War years and uh, the House of Un-American Activities and how that impacted so many people uh, when communism was often um, a code word for um, homosexual or, um, or black or racism. And, um, and we felt that Fellow Travelers was a story um, really interesting and um, needed to be told, and this was the team that would get it done I mean, that's how often half the thing is, are they really going to get it done? And are they going to work productively in a workshop um, you know, setting? And um, so we went. We took it from there. We both loved it. And I just love um, Greg Spears' writing. Well, we'll all get another chance at another world
0: premiere of Greg Spears,
1: uh, working again with Kevin
0: Newberry in the summer of 2021 for Castor and Patience. Yeah. So, Robin, here you find yourself now, Completely established as uh, as a director of both new works, you're much sought after for this kind of activity as well as for the core repertoire. You're a teacher now of uh, of great experience. Um, is there a bucket list of a couple of things that a couple of hills to climb that you're that will keep you vital and interested? A couple of wishes that you have as a professional?
1: I um, am committed to being an artist and an activist and um, projects that concern social justice and telling untold stories that need to be told. Um, it's just, it's part of who I am. I think it goes back to um, my grandfather um, working at the union settlement house and my family working so hard uh, throughout the sixties, um, in the civil rights movement and for fair housing. And uh, I just, I want to make an impact and I wanna change things and I wanna I want to make work that matters. So I really like doing new material and I like new, doing uh, new collaborative productions. I also love, um, you know, the great repertoire. I would love to d- direct a ring cycle. I would love to direct, um, I don't know, um, there are, there are so many things. I'd, I'd like to do a lot more Janáček and Britain. So there are, things, there are definitely things, uh, you know, a Wozzeck, a Berg. Um, it's so interesting because German was definitely my first, second really fluent language. And um, rarely do I get to direct in it. I've directed Rosenkavalier several times. Um, uh, and I, did, I, I was the associate director for the ring in Seattle. But um, I'd love to do a ring. That would be great or to do some more Strauss, mm. but um, I don't know, I feel very, very content now in being part of the authoring of new works.
0: Raman, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. We could go on for another hour at least, but I always try and conclude these enjoyable sessions with a set of questions that I've asked every single participant, and I always say, you can always take the Fifth Amendment on any one of these you don't want to answer,
1: It's like the actor's Exactly.
0: (laughs) So what do you normally have for breakfast?
1: Oh, that's very easy. I have um, grass-fed plain yogurt with sliced almonds, um, hemp seeds, and usually a fruit like a sliced apple and um, flax. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's what I have for breakfast. (laughs) How do you deal
0: with stress?
1: Oh, that's a really good question. Um, My dog...
0: We've actually heard your dog a little bit in the background in our conversation today.
1: That's okay. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, I'm so sorry. He's stressed yeah. because he's not near me. But he, the dog is an incredible um, mm. part of my life. And uh, the garden, getting my hands in the dirt, um, when the pandemic uh, was clear where we were with this, I um, planted four raised beds, and I've been eating from it wow. all summer. It's And that really is where I... Uh, get my release. You've talked about many
0: mentors in this. And so this may be a redundant uh, question, but I always ask our guests if they could single out one person above all who helped you get onto your path as a, as a mentor, or maybe someone who still has an influence in your life, whether they're with us or not, but you're always saying, what would X do? Do you have uh, one person you could single out?
1: oh that's so hard because it's i feel like it's a fabric of so many people i feel so lucky um i mean you know i'm one of those you know that that famous from uh my fair lady um you know uh, we, when you learn to be a teacher from your pupils you'll be taught and um, i think that that is you know being a lifelong learner there are just so many people that you turn to but um Recently, I've been thinking about Toni Morrison, who I who, who I don't know, <laughs> but um, but she talked about people revealing themselves to you, and when people talk, you have to listen, right? When they tell you something about themselves, they have to listen, and uh, that that's been something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, and
0: uh well you have as you said you know there are so many people that you've talked about during our time together and they've all played a part in your development
1: um are you reading anything
0: in particular what's on your what's on your reading stand or on your nightstand right now
1: well right now i am reading um paul uh a book about paul robeson uh by um gerald horn called the artist Mm -hmm. as revolutionary and um and I've just finished Duberman's uh, book about Paul Robeson, the um, biography. So we're we're very much in the research stage uh, with Scott and David and I, and uh, so I had to do, I took a deep dive into that.
0: Are there a TV series or podcasts that you enjoy?
1: Um, I watch every night at 9 p.m. Rachel Maddow <laughs> I am a Rachel Maddow addict and um, I've had to really wean myself from all the rest of the news but I really um, I I love watching her show I think she's brilliant I love her opening thesis and um, and I've learned a lot
0: sometimes they go and sometimes she can go for 25 minutes I'm astonished at her ability to carry on a narrative and keep the audience interested She's a she's
1: I know she's she's just incredible, you know. So um yeah, so I, I I I watch that and you know, I just I'm yeah, and I'm um and I'm a voracious newsreader. So I have I have the Washington Post and New York Times and The Nation and the Daily Beast and the Huffington Post all on my news feed and I'm reading I wake up in the morning and read every <laughs> newspaper and then read the day. That's probably why I'm so stressed. You, uh, speaking like, of uh, reading
0: stuff in small spaces, do you have a phone app that you find particularly useful?
1: Oh, a phone app. Well, you know, I I uh, I study French on ah. Duolingo, so um, and in, amazingly enough, throughout the pandemic, I've managed to study like two or three hours a day, and I've gotten wow. quite good. And um and I just I just told my mom because I've gone through all of those language apps oh, cool. Rosetta Stone and Memrise and and um I've really been having a lot of fun with Duolingo so I highly recommend it.
0: Do you have a favorite Cincinnati restaurant? Oh or one or wow. two?
1: I mean, in this
0: particular Um, moment, they're very difficult to visit, of course. But when things get better again, uh, where's a place you'll go back to?
1: Well, I love Kiki's, and that is up on Hamilton Avenue on College Hill. And I really hope that they survive this whole thing. Um, You know, I really, really hope. And, of Mm. course, I love Soto. Um, Um, What's uh,
0: the best career advice you've ever received?
1: Oh, the best career advice is to figure out what you need to do to be prepared so that you can walk in the work room and, 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 and feel free and always take the high road and, uh, you know, <laughs> try, try not to write the letter that emotionally you would feel better <laughs> to write. write. Write the letter that is going to make things open up the ceiling like Mozart does, you know?
0: Do you have a favorite musician outside of
1: classical music? Well, I grew up loving Joni Mitchell, who is, you know, a great songwriter. And of recent, um, I think it's because um, we all met Rufus Wainwright and I got immersed in the Wainwright family. I've been listening a lot to Loudon Wainwright. And I I just love, um, and I love Bob Dylan. I love um, singer-songwriters.
0: Last but not least, um, what is your elevator speech for convincing someone to try opera for the first time who may be skeptical when you tell them you're an opera director?
1: You know, I never get anybody who's skeptical when I tell them that. In fact, I tend not to tell people that because if I do, they'll never let me out of the conversation. <laughs> but,
0: um, Fair enough.
1: <laughs> I mean, every, every, everybody seems interested in opera these days. Um, you know, I just say it's better than film. It's better than Star Wars.
0: Robin, thank you again so very much for um, being part of these uh, series of conversations, these podcasts. And we look forward to working with you and having you as part of the Cincinnati's artistic life for many more years to come.
1: Thank you so much. It's so great to talk to you today.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information about Cincinnati Opera, please go to CincinnatiOpera.org and please do subscribe to this podcast. For Cincinnati Opera, I'm Evans Mirages.